Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I got together here last year with the brilliant journalist and historian Ann Applebaum of The Atlantic to talk about the challenges that democracy faces in the United States, where she was born and raised, and in Europe, where she lives, in Poland and on which she's an unparalleled expert. Well, we sat down again yesterday amid the catastrophe in Ukraine, this time before an audience at the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics as part of a conference on disinformation and the erosion of democracy we're sponsoring in partnership with The Atlantic. Here's that conversation. Wow. I feel like a slice of lunch meat on a Nobel Prize sandwich <laughs> here. And th- thank God that I have Ann Applebaum with me. Uh, we're, the, we're the sorbet course, you know, in between, nice. the, in between the important dishes. Yeah. Well, 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 uh, well played. Like I said, I'm glad I have you with me. But uh, for those who don't know, and I think many of you do, Ann is a, one of the most incisive writers on global politics, particularly the politics, of, but not limited to Eastern Europe, and has become over the years uh, a uh, important voice on this, on this issue. I did want to, I've been reading all your wonderful pieces lately, scary exhortations at, at times about where we are right now. You live in Poland, right across the border from Ukraine, and we'll get to that. But uh, you just wrote a piece called uh, Why We Should Read Hannah Arendt Now. And I raise that not just because she taught here and we're very parochial, um, but because you, you wrote your first line of that very good piece was, so much of what we imagine to be new is old. So many of the seemingly novel illnesses that afflict modern society are really just resurgent cancers diagnosed and described long ago. We heard Maria speak about what is part of what is new, but I'd love you to sort out in the struggle between autocracy and democracy, what is old and what is new? So first of all, thank you. Um, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here. Not actually the first time I've spoken at an Institute of Politics event, um, but um, and so glad to be back, I should say. When the founders of the United States of America were writing our Constitution, one of the things that they were worried about was demagogues who might come to power um, by abusing the trust of the mob. And so that was more than 200, two centuries ago. And when they were having that conversation and having those discussions, most of what they were reading was about the Roman Republic, which was a subject of widespread knowledge and, and curiosity in, in colonial America, um, including the subject of some popular plays and, and poetry. Um, so they were, so what, we're, what we're talking about when we speak about autocrats and the appeal of autocrats is extremely old. I mean, it is maybe the oldest 
um, the oldest political idea in in humanity. Um, uh, uh, it was addressed in Federalist One, actually. Fe- Federalist One, and Alexander Hamilton was reading about um, Caesar, uh, Julius Caesar. And so many of these questions have been discussed and discussed over and over again. And it's important, I think, also to keep remembering that because some of what is new is, in fact, the technology's ability to um, draw out and amplify some of those human emotions and desires. Um, so what seems to me to be new um, is the ability, uh, is, the, is the way that we communicate and the ways in which that communication now amplify, you know, create and play into and use um, the desire for autocracy or create it or, or, the, or the fear and anger that you know that lead people to demand autocracy. So, so what? So the so nothing is new about the emotions. What is new is the ability of you know, uh, internet platforms to evoke them and amplify them. What about the deployment of these technologies by autocrats, not just in their own countries, but as an offensive weapon? That's that seems. I mean, we've always had those efforts, but they've they've sort of been turbocharged now. So it's very interesting to look at in the 1980s when the Soviet Union wanted to create a piece of disinformation, a conspiracy theory. Um, And this is a true story. They wanted to create the theory that... How do we know it's true? (laughs) Well, the the story of how they did it is true. But they wanted to create, they wanted to, to seed the conspiracy theory that the CIA had created AIDS, the AIDS epidemic. And they did it in a very specific way. They put an, an article appeared, I, I believe, in an Indian newspaper through a sort of friendly journalist speculating that this might be true. Then later, another one in an Italian newspaper. Then they found one, another couple of papers that would print it. And sometimes those papers would then quote one another. At one point, they found a East German scientist who appeared in public and said he'd found some evidence that this was true. And they built up a case for the idea that the CIA had created AIDS over several years. Now, all of that, they can do exactly the same thing, except that it takes 10 minutes. Maria just described it. You know, you can have, you can have a network of fake or even semi-fake websites. You can, you know, that will take articles that have been, you know, seeded or prepared in advance. They will then echo each other. People will then see, oh, look, there are several sources saying this, repeating the story over and over again. You can then create a botnet of trolls or, or, or even real people who you've organized to spread the story. And you can then move the story around the Internet in 10 minutes. And you can give the impression that there's a wave of conversation and discussion about something, even though it doesn't exist and it's not true. So what's different is the scale and the speed. Maria was discussing um, how this has been applied in the elections in the Philippines, but we experienced it with Russia and others, but Russia primarily interfering in our election. How new is that? So it's, this is a really, I mean, in, in a way, this is the dark side or the flip side of globalization, um, namely that we all now live in the same information market. Um, so, as I said, whereas in the past the Russians or the Soviet Union would have had to, you know, try and get something going in the Indian market and then the Italian market and then somehow seed that into the American market, it's now essentially one market. Um, and so the ease with which um, they, can, they can, first of all, study 
um, uh, you know, study American politics and understand it in a way that wasn't possible before because they can use the same micro-targeting and, and research tools that, that, that marketers use. They can use that and they can tailor messages to different groups in specific ways, again, in the same way that marketers use. I mean, the people who, who are selling soap powder or um, washing machines, you know, they also have ways of targeting particular audiences, changing the message, whether you're in, you know, Illinois or Florida or Wyoming or whether you're rich or poor. And all that the Russians did was that they took those tools and they used them to target, you know, Black Lives Matter activists in one part of the country and anti-immigration activists in another part of the country. And of course, it's important to understand that what they did was no different from what American political campaigns do. Very similar, in fact. And so, so the tools were available. And whereas those kinds of tools in the past wouldn't have been available to outsiders or foreigners, now they are because everything's available. They can, they can reach into our markets and, you know, and send whatever messages they want. We have never, this is maybe to discuss later, we've never tried the same in reverse. I mean, not exactly the same thing, but we know very little about the Russian internet, for example. Um, I don't think we spend a lot of time thinking about which groups in Russia would be interested in hearing our messages or, or thought of the kind of language we could use to send them. Um, but they spent many years actually studying us, um, and the 2016 was the result of a long process. Maria showed us a nuclear explosion Twice, actually. Uh, that's the thing about nuclear weapons. Once you use them, it's hard to control them. But, um, uh, but this is a pretty cheap and efficient way to really throw sort of a, a Stuxnet worm into the workings of democracies. Uh, I mean, Putin's army may be being proved deficient right now, but they have a pretty efficient cyber army of a much smaller nature that doesn't cost much to create a lot of havoc. So one, one of the oddities of the current war, and one of the reasons why many people didn't believe it would take place, despite the intelligence that the, the U.S. had gathered and was, and was sharing with European colleagues, was that up until now, uh, the Russians had, had always been very cautious. Their tactic was to dismantle the enemy before you have to fight with the enemy. In other words, they seemed to want to avoid direct military conflict with the West because they believed they could sort of disarm and undermine the West in other ways. Um, and they did it through many ways. I mean, it wasn't just through the, through the use of the, of the Internet and Facebook. It was also through the funding of political parties in really almost every European country um, and, many, and, and democracies around the world. It was through the use of um, bribery, but also just business contacts. They sought to create influence operations inside specific countries using mainstream business people and mainstream journalists. I had a conversation with an Italian journalist a couple of days ago who wanted to talk about you know, the Italian far right and Russian influence. I said, why don't you talk about the Italian business community, you know, the mainstream business community, because they were just as important in shaping Italian views of, you know, we must be pragmatic, we must deal with Russia, and so on. And the same is true in Germany. So they had multiple ways of looking to influence conversation. Um, and so it's important to remember that their ultimate goal wasn't um, it wasn't just to, you know, win a popularity contest or a propaganda war. Their ultimate goal was to dismantle the European Union, to undermine NATO, to persuade the United States to leave Europe. I mean, they had very clear strategic goals. And the information piece of it wasn't PR. It was a part of those goals. It was an attempt to achieve them without actually fighting. Yes. And, it, and in fact, it wasn't to make, uh, it wasn't to uh, promote their own 
image it was to destroy ours. No, no, this is exactly, this is the big difference between modern Russian propaganda and Soviet propaganda. So so there there was no attempt to sell Russia, or very little, sometimes they did it, but no attempt to sell Russia as an ideal society. There was no, you know, communist paradise that was being on offered. Their goal instead was to undermine us and to convince First of all, to convince Russians that Europe is degenerate, that America is falling apart, um, and that there is nothing to admire or to seek in democracy. Because, it, you know, the, Putin's main goal was to prevent Russians from wanting democracy, because he perceived his main political challenge as coming from the democracy movement and democracy activism in Russia that once or twice during his rule has has seemed to have a lot of power and force. And so, first of all, convincing Russia that democracy is nothing, it's it's all cynical, it's all fake, it's, you know, it's not true. And then secondly, seeking to reach people inside democracies and convincing them of the same. And of course, because we have those strains of our own, because our own societies are full of people who are, are angry or cynical or um, disappointed with the nature of modern America or modern Europe, They've, he found, um, it's not as if he invented Marine Le Pen, um, the, the opposition leader in France, or he didn't invent Donald Trump. He simply found them and they were useful vectors. And so he sought to amplify them. So in that sense, you know, that was the, um, it, was, it was an amplification project rather than creating something from scratch. Nor did he create the, uh, the fissures that were there. He, he mined them. He uh, took advantage of them. He, he, he did it. And then I think many other, many others copied him. I mean, I, you know, the, I, I do think that what that Russian actions in the in 2016 were important, partly because they paved the way they showed people others how it could be done. Um, and also because of the use of leaked material from the DNC. You know, that was a tactic that I'd seen used before. Um, so when you leak secret information, even if the information is completely anodyne, which most of that was, I think all of it was, in fact, um, you can, you, you know, you, the, the public is attracted to the idea that something secret has been revealed. So a secret, something's been made public that was, that was secret, and then you could use that to create conspiracy theories and, and hysteria. And I've, I saw that done in Poland earlier on. I saw it done in other countries as well. Well, I, and, and you saw it done to you. I did see it, yes. <laughs> you, after your critical reporting on the, on the Crimea, uh, the, the invasion of Crimea and so on, all of a sudden you, you became the object of, a, uh, this, uh, you know, f- of attention. Yes. No, so there was a brief and very strange moment when a very odd journalist who was in fact a, probably a former KGB um, agent in, in the United States began writing slanderous things about me. And this is actually how I learned about how this works, because one is always more interested in the slanderous things written about oneself. I mean, Maria knows this. That does train the mind. <laughs> you know, it sort of catches your attention, yes. you know. And then you start following it around the Internet. Where is it coming from? And this is how you, this is exactly what, what she just described. You know, you see it. Oh, look, it's on, you know, look, it's on Ron Paul's website. <laughs> Who knew the libertarians were interested in me, you know? And then it appears in another place and you, and you begin to see how they echo one another. And in my case, the sort of height of it, and this is in about 2015, was when Julian Assange's Twitter account tweeted, you know, something about me being a paid agent of, I can't remember whether it was the Polish government or the CIA, but something like that. And so, why is Julian Assange tweeting that about me? To well, his you know, four million followers. To his four million followers, yes. Yeah. So you, obviously, 2016 was 2016, but it, you became, and that was part of it, you became very interested in this 
uh, early on. And in fact, you and a colleague started a think tank. Uh, no, we, so we, yes, I became interested in this in 2013, especially 2014, uh, because in, we, we're all so proud of ourselves now that we're resisting r- Russian propaganda at the moment and the Russian description of the war in Ukraine. But actually in 2014, Russian propaganda was quite successful, um, both in the, both the cover-up and when, when, when uh, soldiers without uniforms marched into the Crimea and announced that they were invading, um, or they weren't invading, there was maybe some kind of civil war starting, or they were, um, they were just there to protect people. Quite a lot of people in the Western world were confused. So I was in London at that time, and I went repeatedly on television and the radio saying, this is a Russian invasion force. And people said, but how do you know they're not wearing uniforms? You know, maybe they're Ukrainian separatists. We don't exactly. And for, for a good few weeks, actually, there was a lot of confusion. Um, and they were very successful in, in portraying this, this invasion as a non-invasion. The other thing they were successful at doing was smearing the Ukrainians. You know, they're Nazis. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're far right. They're ethnic nationalists. Um, and, and there was a certain purchase for that view in mainstream circles in London and Washington and, and, and elsewhere. Um, this time around, it's... What about in creating uh, uh, fissures between eastern and western Ukraine? So, so that's, I mean, Russia's been trying to do that for two decades. I mean, the, you know, the, the point of Russian propaganda inside Ukraine was to create and amplify these divisions, whether they were over language or whether they were over interpretations of history and different ways of seeing the world. Um, that has been their modus operandi there. And one of the Effects of 2014 and the last two Ukrainian presidencies has really been to bring a lot of that to an end. And I think their invasion now is partly a recognition that, that you know, the information war failed in Ukraine. And Ukraine was, partly thanks to them, Ukraine was, um, you know, unifying and, um, you know, rebuilding its state and rebuilding its army. And it was not so easy to divide it using sort of slander and, you know, political games as it had been before. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. So let's go back to your your journey. Uh, so you uh, began paying a lot of attention to this, not just in all, all over Europe. So so we started. This was at a think tank. It was originally a kind of think tank program, and then we moved it to the London School of Economics. Um, this is with my colleague Peter Pomerantsev, um, and it's a very interesting how it evolved. Um, it's now, by the way, it's now at Johns Hopkins. It, it evolved as a Originally, we were investigating how does Russian propaganda work, and we tried to track it in different ways. We worked with a lot of other different groups who were doing this. We tried to track it. We tried to understand it. Um, We did a couple of publications on the Swedish elections, on German elections, and we also looked at various solutions, you know, fact-checking and so on. And one of the things, though, that we pretty quickly learned was that fact-checking doesn't work, um, and it doesn't work because you have to trust the fact-checker. Um, and if people don't trust the fact checker, then they don't believe the fact checker either. And so, so much of what we were talking about, in fact, was about, uh, this was just alluded to as well, was about creating communities of trust. Mm-hmm. How do you build those for people? And that's exactly what Maria was talking about uh, in the project that she's working on in the right. Philippines. Exactly. So how do you create communities of trust? And also, how do you get to the underlying problems of division and polarization. How can you heal polarization? How can you 
bring people together because if you want people to believe something that's true, you have to you almost have to build a community around it. I mean, one of the other effects of it, it isn't just about the internet, but it's it's a it is a sort of effect of trolling of all kinds is that we've had, and this is beautifully described by Jonathan Rauch in his recent book called The Constitution of Knowledge. You know, we've had a decline in um, belief in, in, in truth and facts and science more generally. So it's not just in politics. Um, and part of that is to do with the fact, you know, we, we never really, we don't think very consciously about why it is that we think things are true. But there's a whole ecosystem. Um, you know, here at, at universities, you know, there's a scientific method and there are peer-reviewed papers, and there are um, arguments among colleagues, and there is a, a conversation that leads people to conclude that something is true, and, it's, and you arrive at it through a series of institutions, and that's true in journalism, it's true in academia, it's true in government, you know, you have government, you know, ombudsmen and inspectors and so on, and you reach conclusions based on these networks. If you disrupt those networks and, and make people feel no sense of faith in those networks, they hate universities, they hate journalists, they hate, um, they hate the government, they hate bureaucrats, um, then you suddenly find that you have a, that it's, what is true and what is not true is disputed. And so part of the solution to this problem, I mean, we want to get to that in a minute, is also, you know, there, I think there are some regulatory solutions, but there's also a problem of recreating communities of trust. And this may be something that both media and philanthropy can think about. Yeah, I want to get to, uh, to solutions, but I, I, I want to continue on your journey because part of that journey, once you formed this think tank and once you started doing these studies, uh, was here to the U.S. and you met with policymakers uh, within the government. Uh, in 2016, and you tried to call their attention to... Now, this, was, this was slightly earlier. This was 2015, so it was before... Even, even worse. So before, before we, did a, we did a big project that was a... It was an investigation into Russian disinformation, mostly in Central and Eastern Europe, and we pulled together all the existing evidence at that time, and we put it into a report. This was written by Peter Pomerantsev and Edward Lucas, another colleague, we put it into a report, and then we took the report to Washington, and we took it around, you know, the Hill, and we went to the State Department, and we went, you know, elsewhere, and we showed it to people, and we showed how it was working and how it was influencing politics and so on. And the reaction we got, and remember, this is April 2015, the reaction we got from people was, well, this is all very upsetting and distressing, and it's really too bad for Slovakia, you know, that they have this terrible problem, you know. <laughs> yeah. And we're sorry, you know, about Slovakia. And maybe we'll think of a State Department project that can help the Slovaks. Yes, this goes to your point about people, Maria, about people, uh, Americans tend to think they're so, immune. Right, right. Uh, I mean, I thought Americans would be immune, you know. And when the, as the 2016 election unfolded, you know, I watched kind of my jaw dropping as um, I saw Russian slogans that I knew had originated in the Russian media appearing in the U.S. election campaign. Yeah, what, t- talk a little bit more about that. What did you see in 2016 that you thought was symptomatic of, of what you knew was, were, were patterns of behavior? Well, there, there, there were several things. One of them was, I mean, literally I could follow. There were, there were these slogans. Do you remember um, Hillary, you know, Hillary Clinton will start World War III? Um, Obama created ISIS. You know, these were... These were originally, these are kind of slogans and ideas that originally ran in the Russian press, and then Trump would use them in his campaign speeches. Um, and so I could see this direct connection there. But there were also tactics that looked familiar to me. So the, again, this leak of, of you know, not very interesting 
in, in um, people's emails from the Democratic National Committee. I mean, and then the spinning of those emails into a million different conspiracy theories. Actually, as nobody probably remembers now, Pizzagate was one of those. Pizzagate came out of the emails because some of the emails referred to meetings at a pizza restaurant. This and was then that a story was, about a pedophilia ring. Right, and, the, and that was and CP, which is cheese pizza, is meant to be a symbol for child pornography. And so people read into the emails this story about child pornography in this particular pizza restaurant in Washington. And as we know, at the height of the madness, um, a poor guy from North Carolina drove up to Washington with a shotgun and came to the restaurant to free the children who were in the basement. And then he discovered there was no basement. Remind, um, remind me to order sausage the next time. Right, we, exactly. <laughs> but, but, the, but, the, um, but the technique, in other words, create this idea that there is secret, something secret has been revealed, um, and that, you know, and, and, to, and to then spin off, there was, a, there was a kind of Catholic conspiracy theory that came out of that. There were a whole bunch of things. This is something I'd seen before, you know, almost, I mean, almost, this, was, this happened in Poland um, in, a, in, the, in 2014, 2015 as well. So I'd seen exactly the same technique before. So I, I knew somebody was learning something from someone. Yeah, I, I should ask you, your husband was the foreign minister in Poland and is, is, is still involved, involved in, a member of the European He's Parliament. He's a member of the European Parliament. Yeah. Um, what, what was his experience like uh, as a, a member of government? Well, uh, senior member of government. He, right. So, he, he, you know, mostly his experience was very good, but he was famously t- uh, taped at a restaurant along with dozens of other people. And these tapes of conversations were released. And in none of the conversations was any crime committed. There was no nothing illegal in any of them. But the off the record commentary was twist. Again, it was exactly the same thing. It was kind of twisted into you know, complex conspiracy theories. Um, and the tapes were made by somebody who had connections to the Russian coal industry. And you, as you pointed out, you did studies in a number of different countries. What were the sort of threads of commonality that you saw between them? When you look at the, you know, Russian efforts in political campaigns, they're often very similar. In some European countries, they support both the far left and the far right. And to some extent, they may do that here too. They And it it was a combination of funding for far-right parties and and sometimes particular people or the creation of business opportunities for them. So people close that one of the funders of the Brexit campaign, for example, in the UK had a business opportunity created for him by the Russians. It doesn't mean he was bribed and he's not a KGB agent, but, you know, there were these opportunities would be presented to you. And this happened, this has clearly happened in the circles around Salvini in Italy and other places. Um, You know, again, there was, um, you know, and then the disinformation tactics would often be about, um, you know, getting people to focus on whatever it was that made them afraid. So, you know, fear of immigration, um, fear of Muslim terrorism, which was very important in 2015, 2016 in Europe. Um, fear of immigration, even in countries that didn't have any immigrants. You know, one of the countries where there was, this was done most successfully, and this was not Russian, this was his, his own thing, was, uh, was in Hungary. Um, Hungary is not a country with very many Muslim immigrants, but the fear that they were coming and this narrative about we need to protect Hungarians from this outside threat was extremely effective, um, and it was effective in other places too. Focusing on that and focusing also in particular on kind of gender, um, 
LGBT culture wars um, and looking for ways to divide people over those. This is something that the Russians have also consistently done inside Russia, but also in other countries. I mean, there was a there was a there was a um, very brilliant study that was done of Russian television, just like around about 2016, 17, 18, which looked at how Europe was portrayed on Russian TV. And the study found, you know, to, to make a long story short, that there were lots and lots of news articles and news items about Russia on the three main Russian channels, about Europe, sorry. Um, and they were all negative, maybe one or two exceptions. And almost invariably, they were, the implication was Europe is degenerate, Europeans are afraid, um, and, and degenerate crazy things are happening. You know, in Germany, gay couples are allowed to take children away from straight couples. You know, more right, gay couples have more rights than straight people. You know, this is a, you know, and this is, and sometimes these things would be based on real incidents, sometimes not. Um, But always the distortion was, you know, that there's a moral threat coming from Europe. But this is exactly the same kind of language that was used inside Germany or France. You know, there's a moral threat coming. It's an existential threat to your way of life. Um, And so, and, and it's connected to the institution's, um, of your country and of your democracy. And so what you need to do is resist against those institutions. You're talking about Germany and France in the 20th century or, or currently? This is, this, is, this is current. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> This is current. I mean, another tactic that's very important and, and very important to understand how it's used is the tactic of conspiracy theory. And, and in some cases, the conspiracy theories have risen. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Um, usually they work because they play on something deeper and something real that people do fear. Um, and so in this country, a very, very successful conspiracy theory was that President Barack Obama was born in Kenya, and therefore he's not American, um, and therefore he's an illegitimate president. I mean, you will remember this very yeah, well. Yeah, I, I have a... You, you I remember have a, that one. I have some recollection yeah. of that, yeah. So I didn't take it seriously as a, you know, okay, some crazy people believe this, but up to 30% of Americans did believe it at some point or another. And think about, if you do believe that, think about what it means it means our president is illegitimate. And that means that, you know, the White House and Congress and the FBI and the CIA and the media are all lying to us. You know, the institutions of the state have made someone illegitimate into the president. And that means that the whole system is rotten. You know, the whole country is falling apart. It's not what it's meant to be. It's been taken over by, by enemies, you know, and it's not real um, or it's not, it doesn't represent us anymore. Um, and it was actually a very powerful and important um, uh, uh, moment of change, I think, in, in American public. Like, there's a very similar version of this that happened in Poland. It was a set of conspiracy theories around a plane crash that killed one of the presidents. Yes. Um, and it, for similar reasons, it had a very deep echo. You know, people are in Poland were, are, were spooked by it. The crash happened in Russia. Um, you know, had the Russians plotted it? Was there a cover-up and so on? And this also had the same effect of undermining faith, not just that, you know, people thought something crazy had happened, but it undermined faith in the whole system. And so if you find the right conspiracy theory, and if it has enough purchase and enough, um, it, it echoes enough with things that people really are afraid of, um, then you, you can, um, you, you know, you can undermine people's trust in the, in the democracy. And this is a tactic the Russians have used over and over and over again. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files.
And now, back to the show. The same dynamic that causes this to be a profitable strategy for social media platforms makes it a, pos- a, a profitable strategy for political insurgency. Yeah. No, no. Con- I mean, con- and conspiracy theories spread because they, they, you know, what is the, what the good ones do? Some of them don't work, but what the good ones do is they seem to provide. Now let's talk uh, about good conspiracies. Good, good ones, <laughs> successful ones. Yeah. Well, what, what, what is the word? Well, effective <laughs> ones. Yes. What they do is they seem to provide an explanation for mysterious facts, you know, so or things that seem strange to people. And so they, they function, you know, as a, a story that connects something and that gives people this sensation, now I understand it. This thing was that was bothering me that I couldn't understand, you know, how did how did a black person with a strange name become president of the United States? You know, that makes no sense in any any piece of mind, you know, here's the explanation, you know, he's not really the president, yeah. you know, or how did this plane crash kill the president of Poland? It couldn't have been an accident. Here's the explanation. There was a secret plot, you know, and, and they offer that and it's, and people find it very satisfying and they click on it and they pass it on. And, and then as Maria has just brilliantly described, the architecture of Facebook is such that the things that make people angry or afraid right. Or, or, you know, are the things that move fastest across the Internet. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I want to leave some time for questions. So um, I should ask you, and by the way, I should say parenthetically, the whole question of the legitimacy of the president is with us still. Indeed. Uh, in the current, and not by accident. Current yeah. in the administration. You've done a series of studies. Your, your think tank arena has done a series of studies. In each study, you offer uh, a, uh, prescriptions that suggest themselves from the research that you've done. Um, just first of all, briefly say, how do you do that research? And B, talk about the solutions that you think are most most important. So the research is always a group of partners, you know, people who, stu- who, who study the internet. Multidisciplinary. They're, they're all, they're, we usually try to bring together different groups. Sometimes we do a lot of polling, trying to understand division. Sometimes we use, um, you know, people who can follow, you know, Twitter bots across the internet. I mean, they're, they're, they've been, they've been, we've tried different kinds of things. So they're usually projects that bring people together. This is, I should stipulate, this is fairly small scale. There are other people who do these things at a much bigger scale than we do. But the, the solutions, I think, go in two or three categories. And some of them, I think there is a regulatory solution. We're not there yet in that our Congress is not yet prepared to talk about it. Our lawmakers aren't yet there. One or two of them are, but not as a group. And this would be the regulation not of content. So we're not going to create a ministry of information that reads every Facebook page and takes things down. But it would be a way of regulating the algorithms, so at least opening up the black box, looking at what they are and how they work, and giving some people outside of the companies ways to understand that. And if you, if you think that's impossible because the platforms are too powerful, remember that once upon a time it was considered impossible to regulate the food industry. Um, and the food industry was only eventually regulated because you know, socially concerned scientists began doing experiments measuring food, and then they began publishing the results of their work. And in some cases, they created kind of, you know, newsletters or things focused at consumers. They raised public awareness, and they've and now we have food regulation, which we all think is totally normal, and it wouldn't occur to us that, you know, that we shouldn't have it. Um, and so we're still at that phase. So, that, so there is a, there is a we, we could get there. It's, it's not technologically impossible. And there are, um, there are scientists, you know, an internet, I mean, uh, computer scientists who are working on this, you know, in, in some universities. The second solution, 
um, that is worth thinking about, and this would be, I'm sure this will come up again at this conference, would be a, a putting a lot of thought into what would a public interest social media project look like. And by this, I don't mean like the BBC website online. I mean, I mean, what would if you know if you were to have online conversations that were good and useful and fruitful, how would they be designed? And what algorithms would they be based on? And what would they seek to do? And this is also a huge area of research and experimentation. And there are many examples, in fact, of people who've tried versions of this. So there have been, um, you know, there have been, the Taiwanese are very interested in this for, for a lot of interesting reasons, obvious reasons. The Taiwanese are very interested in democracy and how to protect it. And, want, and they think about this a lot. Um, and so, for example, the, you know, the use of, there's a, there's a platform called Polis, which is a platform where you can essentially hold an online debate, um, except that instead of producing everybody shouting at each other and being angry, it sorts people into groups and makes, you know, so that you become clear where the areas of consensus are. So could you create consensus online? Could you find other ways of talking online? Could you create a a social media that had slightly different rules and the rules would, you know, in the ways that you have rules for a town hall or rules for Wikipedia, which is a great example, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, could you have an online conversation that had rules? And maybe the rules would be that um, no one can be anonymous. Everybody has to be a real person or at least be identifiable as a real person. So there are no bots. Maybe some of the rules are that when you post things, you have to wait six hours before it appears. There's a, there are a couple examples like that, so that when you are really mad and you post something, you know you have three hours to think about it and take it back. I mean, so you know, but you could you can imagine structuring something like that and having that having those alternatives. And there are there are there's something called FrontPorch.com in Vermont, which works a little bit like this. There are a few other things, um, and that you know the challenge would be finding ways to finance it finding ways to persuade people to communicate on that and not on Facebook um, and so on. But it's not impossible. It's a, and this is, again, a great area of really interesting research. Uh, you mentioned Wikipedia significantly. It, it isn't supported by advertising. Exactly. Uh, and this is enormously lucrative. We'll be talking about this in, in great detail. So I don't have a lot of faith that the, the, the platforms are going to regulate themselves. No, they will not. Yeah. They will not. They, they, they could. They, they do know a lot about what spreads and what doesn't spread. Facebook has even told us, um, has even said that after January the 6th, they were much more cautious about what kinds of things they allowed to go forward and how they and how information was spread. And when I heard that they'd done that, I thought, well, if they could do it at that moment, why didn't they do it before? So no, they are not going to regulate themselves. Um, They don't have any interest in regulating themselves. Appealing to them to be nicer or more public-spirited seems quite pointless to me. Um, and, And that's why I hope eventually we could get to a conversation about some kind of regulation. And because it seems to me that both um, that there is a bipartisan interest in this. I think it's it's not impossible. Actually, uh, Frank Fukuyama, I've had this conversation with him a couple of times, does think it's impossible. And so he has another idea, which is that at least we could we could create something called middleware, which would at least allow us to choose our algorithms. You know, so you you know you would we wouldn't all be subjected to the same one. So we would have some control over what kind of information we see. And that's another kind of technical solution. I, I want to thank Anne, and I want to I, I commend all of her 
writing to you. You should read her Pulitzer Prize winning book, uh, Gulag, and, and everything else she writes. Um, and I think this gives you a sense of why you thank should you. be reading thank that. You. So thank Thanks you very much. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.